You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. So on today's episode, we're exploring the fifth theme of the alternative orthodoxy, which deals with the separate self. Here's how it goes. The separate self is the major problem, not the shadow self, which only takes deeper forms of disguise. And how true this is. I feel like as we delved into this conversation, it got subtler and subtler about how the shadow takes more and more disguises. And when we do that, how we often separate from the whole. Yeah, I really appreciate that certain themes keep coming up. And one of them is power, control, how we try to control, how the ego tries to keep us from seeing things we don't want to see in ourselves. And but also, I appreciate how shame has come up a lot, mm. the role of shame in that it it paralyzes us and how unhelpful shame is because it actually keeps us from looking at our shadows and seeing things that need to grow and accepting them as part of our imperfect perfection of being human. Yeah, that tendency is so toxic. And then also that threat of forgiveness of not only self and other, but the necessity of community to hold the mirror so that we can forgive ourselves and and while also witnessing our shadow self. Yeah, I feel like the shame component is so strong and we many of us have received it within Christianity, especially that if we're not perfect, you know, that there's something wrong with us and, and how that, like you just said, Paul, how that perpetuates a sense of isolation and separateness. I also really appreciated that looking at this tenet allows us to see that we have to shift how we identify, that part of the the path of transformation is to shift how we perceive ourselves so that we can begin to see ourselves as one through whom the whole resounds, Mm. as connected to the whole, as inextricable from the whole. And when we live from that place, it's actually easier to look at our shadow, right? right? Because we're not so flattened by the fact that we make mistakes. Yeah, and it frees us to live as one unique part of the whole be a part of that diverse body and not feel like we have to conform to or be part of something that's just completely uniform without that distinction of who we are and what we're called to be. That's right. So with that, we hope you'll enjoy this episode on the separate self, the fifth theme of the alternative orthodoxy. All right. So we are here with the fifth theme of the alternative orthodoxy which is the separate self is the major problem, not the shadow self, which only takes deeper forms of disguise. Priya, I wonder if you would kick us off if there's any story that comes to mind that helps put some flesh on that theme. Yeah, I think when I first encountered this theme was around the time that I was trying to make sense out of the true self, false self. And yeah, which, it would make sense. Which of these selves is the real self? Can the real self stand up? And trying to make sense out of that, in the beginning, my instinct was to try to attack the false self, like as if mm. I could eradicate it, as if mm. I could like just like cut it out and throw it away, which in fact only made it worse, right? Because then I'm in denial of the fact that the only thing you can do is include it and welcome it as part of your humanity. But The two stories that come to mind is one, how the ego takes a a further form of disguise. I went through this phase when I first encountered this path where I turned contemplation into the new like righteousness (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) to the point where I 
I went through this phase that I call contemplative frumpy face, where I thought it was my job to wear really baggy clothes that were like handed, like secondhand clothes. And like, I dyed my hair brown and I kind of just went into this place of like, the more frumpy I was, somehow the more contemplative I was and the holier I was. And I eventually outgrew that phase, but it always makes me laugh because it's like contemplative frumpy should now be, I feel like a, you know, a clothing line or something. But in the process of going through that, I realized what I was doing was totally driven by the ego. Even with contemplation, I was like feeling extremely proud of myself for multiple sits in the day. And the shadow self, my ego was just taking a further form of disguise. It was just, it was still there, but it just found a new way to manifest. And the thing that shifted it for me was when I went to a symphony performance, all of a sudden it kind of struck me, this idea that it's not that we have to cut parts of ourselves away, but rather to see each of ourselves as an instrument, as a part of the whole. And that if I live from that sense of wholeness, of belonging to that wholeness, then I don't have to move into that self-righteous game of cutting pieces and parts of myself and shoving them away as if they're evil and wrong mm -hmm. that tends to perpetuate the cycle of this anyway. But something about seeing a symphony play and really experience it or going to a musical like The Lion King, which I just went to recently, where you really see all of these participants joining in together in one voice, in one chord, in one symphony, it illustrates this tenet for me to understand that really it's about us recovering that sense of belonging to that whole. What about you, Paul? Well, that's a beautiful story <laughs> and really helpful for me. You know, I had this strange hunch that I was going to be dead by the time I was 30 when I was a kid. Really? Just because of some family health issues. Not with me, but mm. when I was in the womb, my it was discovered my mom had cancer. So I could only imagine some of that mm. fear and trauma being sure. transferred to me. Yeah. And then my dad had some, some heart issues my entire childhood. And my brother, when he was born, they weren't sure he was going to make it. Wow. And so out of my family, I was the healthy one. So my thought was, sure. my due is coming. For whatever reason, I picked the arbitrary age of 30. Like, mm. yes, I'm going to die at 30. Die at 30. So what I found myself doing in hindsight was splitting myself into two. Like, I, I don't have time to deal with any of the, the false self or the insecurities or the failures because I only got till I'm 30. I got to just power through. And it was just that deeper form of disguise of just suppressing, suppressing, suppressing. And I remember when I came as an intern here and we were sitting in our internship, like sharing circle. And I said, you know, I remember when I lived in my false self and now I live out of my true self. You'd arrived. I'd arrived with this, like, this hubris of only, you know, a 20 something can have, at least I could have. And that year really helped me see like, there's all this unfinished business that I haven't processed. I haven't worked with. I haven't looked at not recognizing that how, I'm sure apparent that split was for everyone else to see, but I was just gung-ho with my spiritual life being the goal of all goals and denying everything else. Mm -hmm. But is that in my internship, you're really being able to begin to see that my shadow was pretty large mm -hmm. and that I needed that community to help me look at it with, with love and that it's all a part of my journey. It's not just this singular. So it was just that arbitrary thing of thinking I'm going to die at 30. And then just the way that allowed me to deny so much mm -hmm. of my life. But Paul, 
when you were an intern, did you rock the contemplative frump look? Were you contemplative frumpy? I think I'm still in it. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Richard? You know, I was just thinking as you both were talking, would it help the listeners if even at this point we describe the shadow self a little bit? Or have we done that already? Nope, that was our first question. So oh, that's please, the first. Why don't okay. you, if you don't mind. Wait, I'll wait. Are sure. you sure? Okay. That's fine to wait, yeah. Because they might be saying, what is this that we're, uh, yeah. <laughs> I just remember that this teaching which came to me, I have to admit, more clearly from Buddhism. Hmm. But then I said, well, my gosh, Jesus is referring to the same thing, the vine and the branches or whatever other metaphors he gave us. Just feeling a huge sense of relief when I would get offended or be hurt by some kind of betrayal or uh, rejection or whatever. And you've heard me say this, but I, I did learn it by saying to myself, Richard, what part of you is hurt? Mm. You know? And I knew it was always the separate self. The, the self in union doesn't easily get hurt. It's just too secure. It's too grounded. And I guess I'm not giving you one example. It's just that's happened 300 times mm -hmm. in my lifetime where I, I realize how much I'm identified with my separate Richard teacher, priest, Franciscan, male self than I am with who I am in God. It's always a liberation, always. But it's always a letting go, too, because you've, you've firmed up those boundaries that take the offense, the Richard self. Yeah. And you've probably been taking it seriously for three weeks. And then to let go of it feels like losing, feels like a defeat somehow. So that's my ongoing experience of this dynamic, I guess I'd call it. Yeah. Well, Richard, for our first question, it's going to be a complete shocker. You don't see it coming. <laughs> How would you define the separate self and the okay. shadow self? Yeah, I was moving into it, I guess, right there. So the separate self is the self that really believes, and we're really programmed to do this, so there's nothing evil about it. I experience my body is sitting over here, and yours is sitting over there that I am me and you are you. So you know God expects us to fight our way out of this paper bag. But it doesn't come naturally because the first half of life is defining it, making it important, making it smart, making it strong, whatever it might be. But if you persist in that too much, I'll say by the second half of life, a lot of things start going wrong. The big one being you can't love. You really can't. You can't have empathy. You can't feel other people's sadness or pain. Now, if you're really hardened in that identity, you don't even know that you can't do those things. You think everybody is that way. In... 
individualistic America, it's easy to persist in that for a long time because it feels, you know, the competitive nature of our culture allows that to continue sort of unquestioned. Well, of course, it's you against him and her against you. Something has to put a crack in that facade, in that vessel that you've so meticulously constructed. Now, if you're real practiced at plastering it up again, (laughs) you'll put off transformation a long time. Now, that's just a starter, but I want to quickly jump to the shadow self, which is even harder for people to understand because, of course, we use the word shadow in different ways. But ours is largely a Jungian way. Carl Jung, I think, very helpfully described the shadow as that self which is there, but you don't want to see it. Mm. It's hidden in the shadows. It's, it's unacceptable to your public persona, mm. to your public image that you've projected to the world or even to your, well, that's even to yourself. If you hold on to it too tight, you believe your own press by 30. This is true. And you normally don't realize that whole parts of it aren't true at all. Oh, that's very, very humiliating to recognize that because it's always something that didn't fit in with my public persona and my private self-image. So shadow work is crucial to becoming whole, crucial to growing up spiritually or even psychologically. And you all need mirrors. I think that's why most of us are called to marriage or at least in-depth, persistent relationship because we need mirrors to say, honey, you're not really (laughs) what you think you are. Oh, I am too. Well, (laughs) maybe you are some days. The shadow self doesn't die easily. It as we say here in the description, it only takes deeper forms of disguise. Mm. I have sought to be a poor Franciscan all my life, and remember when I was a young man, a young friar, I'd empty out my room every six months and get poor again. (laughs) 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 You know, I just had to recognize that less and less, but it's still true, I do like nice things, not exaggeratedly nice things, but just things that are beautiful, things that are tasteful, restaurants that are well-appointed, and food that is. I do like that. So when people treat me to it, I, I get rid of my shadow love it by saying, well, he paid for it. Because <laughs> he paid for it and bought me this expensive meal. It's okay to eat it. And it is. But it's just having to admit that, you know, Richard, you're materialistic too. And you're soft and comfortable too. I don't need to hate myself for it. But I do need to know it. 
or I really fool myself. I really kid myself. And you just can't get away with that too long. The whole key to the shadow self is it's revealed in the seeing and the deliberate seeing, which is usually out of the corner of your eye. Mm-hmm. You can't get it directly. It has to be revealed in an unguarded moment. Or in the remark of a friend that says something, and you think, oh, am I really that way? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Some <laughs> Forgive me, this is really embarrassing, because I pride myself on being clean. But Elias, who helps me at the house, you know, he said to me a few days ago, have you taken a bath recently? <laughs> I said, do I smell? I said, I, uh, are you, do I really? And I whiffed under my arm. Because of all these meds I'm on, I actually do have some odors, I guess. But my nose is dead. I don't smell anything. So I, I made him promise to keep telling me. If I, these are the gifts was of community. Yeah. No one wants to think. They're smelly. Isn't yeah. that wonderful? It isn't really a moral evil to be smelly. Right. Right. <laughs> but it's shadow. It's just I'm an inferior person if I stink. <laughs> That's so, so, so you have permission to. If I smell, let me know. <laughs> this is interesting to me, though, that the Christian tradition has often made many of us feel like our job was to fix what is wrong to eradicate the sin yeah, portion, yeah, yes. to By all means. cut it out, fix it, heal it. Maybe not even heal it. Heal it is almost too integrated of a word for what many of us were given. Most too Christ-like. Of us, yeah, <laughs> that was almost too Christ-like for our experience of Christianity. And what I hear you saying, Richard, is that essentially in this tenet, that the problem isn't that we sin or make mistakes or miss the mark or have a shadow or have stuff going on or are in process. That's not the problem. But that essentially the problem is that we perceive ourselves as separate from each other and the whole. Yep, yep. And so it shifts the emphasis then about we're not trying to fix the issues. The machinery of being human isn't the issue but kind of update our our operating system to just perceive differently. Mm. Is that right? Because the perception process is seems to be what, what shifts or what needs yeah. to shift. No, I think that's right. And to switch to that perception process yes. is somehow experienced as a defeat or a, uh. oh, I couldn't have missed this all that time or have other people been seeing mm. what I can't see. Like there's a humiliation. Yeah, in it, like am a, I that dumb or that gross or that stupid? Do or I that talk that overbearing? much? Overbearing, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like do I talk that much? Yeah. Or, uh, or talk too little, whatever it might be. Yeah. When someone else names it, it's uh, – very humiliating. Yeah. Yeah. If if it's something you've been trying to hide real well. Right. Mm-hmm. I think one of the ways it manifests for me too, or and still does, is not just not knowing how to love, mm-hmm. but the yes. fear of being loved mm-hmm. as I am fully. Yeah. And I, I think yeah. that's another way for me to you know, I think about Jesus saying, Do not fear, do not be afraid. Mm-hmm. And that invitation is 
do not be afraid to be fully loved just as you are uh, shadow and all and the games we play with that separate self. I like it. Well said. Thank you. I'm wondering, Richard, if you could share with us a little bit more about Carl Jung. You brought him up just now. But obviously this this shadow language comes from from his work. How would you describe his core contribution Mm -hmm. um, and how it's influenced you on this tenet? I'd have to say in a major way, if I'd list, now don't ask me the other four, but he's one of my five great teachers. Mm-hmm. I can remember I had read the name in works of philosophy and psychology, but never read any of his books. And when I was in college at Dunscotus in Detroit, I remember taking one of his books off the bookshelf and just paging through it. And knowing I was on to something that was deeply true. I wish I could remember which of his themes it Hmm. it was. I don't know that I do remember, but the ones that still are with me today are his notions of the anima and the animus, Hmm. the female part of a male and the male part of a female. I just said, yeah, that's true. And then his notion of archetypes. And you've heard me quote this so often, that we we create the images that the soul needs to see for its own transformation. And I think being raised a Catholic and at this beautiful old medieval Dunscotus College where there was art everywhere, I had just lived in the midst of this kind of beauty. And I wondered, why do some pieces of art just fascinate me. Mm. You know, I want to look at them whenever I pass by. And others mean nothing whatsoever. So archetypal truth, which was connected to his notion of the unconscious, that most of what we do is unconsciously motivated. Mm. I knew that was true. And we have this expectation that we're all fully aware. It was obvious to me hardly anybody's aware. by the way they deny and project. Then I reverted to Freudian terms like projection and, and, and so forth to explain what Jung was seeing. He always struck me after I'd read a bit of Jung as a man who, who must have been a believer. And his great disappointment in Christianity was it was so external. It was all just External beliefs, external behaviors. He said, there's no interior life in most Christians, Catholic or Protestant. I said, yeah. I mean, that's become central to my whole life, that recognition of the necessity of interiority to balance out so much externalized morality and externalized religion, externalized liturgy, externalized notion of priesthood or ministry. And then, of course, this massive notion of the shadow self, just that someone would clarify for a largely moralistically trained Catholic that the shadow self is not the bad self. And I didn't believe it because he said it, but because he said it, I was able to believe what I knew to be true Mm. at a deeper level. Yes, he's right. Mm. 
And in all these, there must be one or two more that he, he named things by giving words to what I intuitively suspected. I remember when I taught in Switzerland several times and they took me to places where he'd worked and taught and written and I felt I was walking in a, a sanctuary, mm. you know. It was just, he really evoked for me the meaning of holiness. And yet here I recognized most Christians thought of him as a pagan, an esoteric, as the Germans call him. And in fact, even in Switzerland, when I would quote him, I found out again and again, he wasn't that popular. He wasn't that well-known. Even here he was one of their own, but there was a resentment about him. And I think it's because of his rather harsh criticisms of Christianity. Hmm. So they they just didn't read him. But they were very fair, really. And then, oh, the other thing I used to teach when I was in charge of the youth community that became New Jerusalem in in Cincinnati. All these young people, I don't know if you have them more when you're young, but they were always coming to me with their dreams. Now, we were part of the charismatic movement, so we had fostered that, I guess. Mm -hmm. But his help in understanding that this was the way the unconscious was trying to break through. And as a young man, I had many revelatory dreams, and he gave me immense permission to trust them. And each one builds on the other. And the language of dreams is symbol. Hmm. It's not literalism. And once you get one or two good dreams that really, you know this is your deeper self speaking, Mm -hmm. it almost cures fundamentalism. Really, it does. I bet a fundamentalist has to repress his or her dreams Mm. because they don't want to read reality as symbolic. Mm. They want to read it as literal. So they'll, they'll make any dark dream, the devil, the devil was in my dreams last night. And to say, this might have been a friend showing you what you don't want to see. (laughs) <laughs> which it often, if not usually, is. Yeah. Oh, it, maybe that's what we should do for fundamentalists. Give them a good dream course. <laughs> dream union <laughs> analyst. And then it just doesn't work anymore. You know it's not true. Yeah. Literalism. Yeah. yeah. Another name for everything will continue in a moment. Is there life after doom? Explore the complexity of hope and grief at our upcoming event, Courage and Resilience, an online gathering with Brian McLaren. Unpack themes from Brian McLaren's new book, Life After Doom. Discover how to find courage, even when everything may feel hopeless. Join us live on May 17th at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. All those who register will have access to the recorded replay for one year. Register at cac.org courage. Explore art as a spiritual practice in the next issue of Wanting, the biannual journal from the Center for Action and Contemplation. Wanting, art and spirituality. 
features images and reflections from leading actors and musicians, including Scott Avitt, Josh Radner, Lourdes Bernard, and more. Get your copy today at cac.org slash wanningart. That's cac.org slash O-N-E-I-N-G-A-R-T. Have you taken an online course with the Center for Action and Contemplation? Explore the intersection of ancient wisdom and Jesus' teachings in The Divine Exchange, an online course featuring Cynthia Bourgeau. Fully embrace divine interaction each day, starting June 16th. Register today at cac.org slash online dash ed. That's cac.org slash O-N-L-I-N-E dash E-D. I took a class at Creighton on Jungian psychology and Christian spirituality. And my professor, who is now my spiritual director, really helped me with my seeing my dreams as these, you know, invitations from the unconscious to see what I'm unwilling to see. Mm -hmm. And to be able to have someone who's not telling you what your dream means, but to work with it archetypically, Mm -hmm. I mean, it literally helped me decide to get married because of a dream I had and this image of me on a rope swing, just going back and forth, never letting go, back and forth, not deciding. And below was just this big ocean of unknown. Mm. And the way that she helped me work through that dream Mm. allowed me to see the ways that I was clinging to indecision as a way Mm. to not drop Mm. into the unknown. Mm. But I think think that that is part of, I think what I envy a little bit in the Catholic tradition is the numerous archetypes that are available. And in growing up in the evangelical world, there wasn't that same opportunity to see archetypes reflected back in their smallness and in their wholeness. And so I I wonder if you could speak to the way that the archetypes present in the perennial tradition kind of help, I'm thinking back to that that first theme, that help elucidate how we move towards wholeness. Well, if I'm hearing you, don't, don't let me go on a tangent, but this whole idea of pay attention to images that fascinate you, that draw you in. When you go to an art museum, why do I want to stand in front of this one? What is it saying to me? You would remember, Paul, when you did the rites of passage. In the early 90s, I started collecting every postcard and photograph and from a magazine picture of men in every stance I could imagine. King, warrior, lover, magician, positive and negative, male, female, father, son, and I created six rather huge boards. They were probably still used when you made it. They traveled around the country and they got pretty raggedy as the years went on. But I never had to encourage the men to spend some time in front of those pictures. And I'd say, just keep looking. Why do you keep returning to the warrior board? You're probably a warrior archetype. Or you're trying to discover it because you've rejected Mm. the warrior archetype, part of your soul. And of course, the the most popular board was always the father-son because so many men began their men's work by bemoaning necessarily their poor relationship with their father. And they longed for some dear pictures. But again, I'd always have on the board both uh, positive and, and negative. 
So I have no doubt to this day, and that has been continued in Czech Republic, Ireland, Australia. They've all created their archetype boards, as they call them, because they saw, my God, it evokes. It evokes the unconscious. And of course, this must please a four. Uh, you know, the <laughs> I'm power so happy of right art. Now. <laughs> and it might be one of the greatest weaknesses of, of Protestantism. Yeah. That it rejected or did not understand the archetypal world. That words don't really of themselves evoke and transform you, but images do. Mm. Is that what you asked me? Yeah. <laughs> I went on my tangent anyway. To it directly, directly. But oh, I, oh. I, I want to say, though, that just as the separate self is the major problem for us individually, I think collectively our spiritual traditions. The major problem is when they consider themselves separate and unique and, and oh, only. That's well, yeah. well, the need stated. The yeah. need for for a holistic view where everything belongs and and all these. I, I love how your tenets, Richard, are building on each other. Mm -hmm. Right? It's like Hope so. there's there's momentum here because without the perennial tradition, I have to say our Christian archetypes are pretty lame, <laughs> especially for women, because there right. aren't very many powerful archetypal images for us where we can befriend things that society has deemed as not socially acceptable. Things like fury and rage and energies that we're, we're kind of afraid of. And I think I'm saying this because when you ask the question about the perennial tradition and archetypes, immediately what came to me was the Hindu goddess Kali. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she is fearsome. Mm. She is scary. She's out there with a sword and there's blood everywhere. And it's, she's called the liberator. She's called the mother of liberation. And that holy fire is so necessary. But it seems to me, Richard, that what's happening with the shadow self is that it connects with fear, kind of as you said, Paul. Mm. It's that which we're almost afraid to see of ourselves? Yes. Fear is a big part of it. That's right. Is that the same mechanism, do you think, as the true self, false self that Thomas Merton describes? Like, what's the relationship between, yes. you know, how he talks about the false self and how Jung talks about the shadow self? Some have accused me, and maybe rightly so, of conflating them too much. That false self is always shadow self. So I think they're right. I don't want to say they're always the same, but they're certainly frequently the same. False self has more a sense of shame to it. Shadow self has more a sense of shame to it. False self has more a sense of ego to it. Mm. Uh, that that's, makes sense? That's helpful. Yeah. That's yeah. the first time I've said that. Yeah. Just now. Yeah. Wow, I wish I'd said that earlier. <laughs> Good. So that's probably why people were a bit dissatisfied when I talked as if they were one and the same. Mm. Mm -hmm. They're not totally. They overlap for sure, but it's the difference between ego and shadow. That's really helpful because it, it invites us then to welcome the ego mechanism, not to try to cut it out, like I was saying earlier, mm -hmm. which is so the initial instinct is to fix it, break it, or yes. get rid of it, to welcome the ego mechanism and say, yep, you're there. You're going to do that thing you do, and you're always going to find a way to show up. With shame, it's a little harder, though, because it's so difficult to see that which we're afraid to see. Mm -hmm. And I wonder 
you know, thinking on the on the the story you started with, Paul, if this doesn't connect back to the importance of community, or e- I'm even thinking about confession, for instance, in the Catholic tradition, without somebody saying, "Hey, it's okay, you're you're human," that theme you've been coming back to again and again, Richard, the welcome to imperfection, <laughs> we're all there. Without that loving gaze, I don't know that it's even possible to do shadow work. No, that's right. That's what I meant by mirroring. Yeah. You have to have help in that. You can't just delve in in your private cave. It needs to be revealed to you. And the humiliation and embarrassment is, is that how I look? Is that how I'm coming across? Otherwise, you'll just, oh, it doesn't matter. It's just a thought in the head. Mm-hmm. Your evil or your, is a thought in the head. That's very legitimate. Mm-hmm. A community is our marriage, the smallest community, is a very needed element. And I've always said that's the danger of celibacy, those of us who live in community, but there's not one person who's allowed to mirror us And I think that's why the tradition of spiritual directors emerged in monastic and religious Mm -hmm. communities. Because we didn't have a wife or a husband, so there better be someone you let in. Mm -hmm. Like when Father Jim O'Brien, my Jesuit spiritual director, revealed to me that I was a one. It was just so, ugh. Sorry, Corey. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, oh, God, is that me? And I just drove back to the friary, which was about five miles away, just have people seen this in me all my life? Mm -hmm. And I thought it was zeal. I thought it was on time, good Boy Scout, clean and reverent. And in fact, I was probably overbearing most of my life. (laughs) Well, you've heard me say this when I teach the Enneagram. If it doesn't humiliate you, you haven't grasped its truth, Mm -hmm. what you are, what your game is. Mm. It seems like it has to raise that cognitive dissonance within you and then move down to almost the wounding of the body or like yeah, not just to get stuck good, in the head. Good, good. Can, can you speak to how, I mean, we have these opportunities to see how we're living in that separate self or how the shadow comes up through this mirroring. What kind of words of wisdom would you offer to those who can, can see it in their mind and, and think about yeah. it, but how do you let that move down through your, uh-huh. your entire great. bodily experience? Yeah. Well, you've, you've got what I'm trying to say when I continually say you have to suffer it as a wound or as a humiliation. It can't just be head-knowing. It has to be gut. I used to say you want to vomit. Uh. <laughs> That's probably an overstatement, but it's like, I hope no one has been seeing this. Mm. <laughs> like when Elias told me the other day, I stunk. <laughs> <laughs> I've since asked him twice. I said, do I stink? I said it this morning, do I stink today? He said, no, no, not today. (laughs) (laughs) Have people been seeing this or smelling this? And I don't know it. It's, wow. That's good that really happened because it's a very real example. Mm -hmm. Because smell is not a, a moral imperfection. 
But why are we so humiliated by it? And I mean, my mother used to whisper in my ear, you have bad breath, go wash your mouth. You know? <laughs> or there's wax in your ears, and she'd put her finger. Oh and gosh. now this is probably the things ones would be offended by, but any notion of uncleanliness. Mm -hmm. Imperfection yeah, of any kind. our imperfection. I don't think I answered what you asked. What, you what, did. I mean, you, you, talk, you spoke I? to not allowing to just Oh, it rattle around be, the head. It's yes, got to it flow to through the a, entire being. A uh, cellular knowing, yeah. as you've heard me say over the years. It, it has to kick you in the belly a little bit, yeah. at least a little bit. And that's what I mean when I say you want to vomit. It's yep. like, ugh, God, is that how obnoxious mm. I am, you know? You come in, Richard, and you just start talking and take <laughs> over the whole table. Do I? Oh, God, I hope not. You know, <laughs> I think you've got to have a few moments like that. Yeah. And it's a true friend who will say that to you with love, privately, preferably, <laughs> and not at the table where you have to suffer the group humiliation. And for you both as parents, this is important to your kiddies. Mm. You know, you're the first mirrors that say, now, sonny boy, well, and to do that without shaming. Without yeah. shaming them. that That's the key, uh -huh. because when we shame each other, we perpetuate the, the, the problem, yeah. and we make each other feel more isolated, more separate, yeah. more alone. And I think culturally, that's a huge problem right now, that, that we have gotten so used to shame and blame as a form Surely. of attacking one another. Writing them off. Yeah. I do think that kids are also the best at telling you, mirroring oh, back. So honest. There's no filter. It just comes out and you have to deal with whatever whatever it is. Yeah. I mean, not to keep going with this stink metaphor, but the number of times my daughter's been just said, Dad, you stink. Oh, really? <laughs> you know? I and, love and it. And it's just, there's no filter. It's just, this is what's happening. <laughs> Mirroring from the the, the, the youngest yeah, ones. Yeah. Are you sure she was saying that like from a physiological standpoint and not just like a general? <laughs> just a general like, stance like, in life, <laughs> spiritually, physically. <laughs> so I want to transition to talking about selfhood because without a stable selfhood that can yes. withstand Good. That, that wounding, that humiliating process of seeing the shadow, we collapse, right? So... I want to connect this tenet back to the, the Trinity for a second, because if we build on these, right, if we hold that reality is relational, then when we're living from the false notion of separateness, could we say that the problem or sin is living in anti-reality or living the lie of separateness, that our choices and actions don't impact the whole, that we're not accountable to the whole? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah we refuse to accept the the implications of connectedness. You know, it's very interesting that our central sacrament of Eucharist, or communion as you very well call it, is naming the whole deal. Mm. Go to communion. Go to communion. Mm. Yes, go to union. Mm. Go to the place of union. And you transfer the bread to another person, even the action of the ritual is relational. We're always told, I hope I don't offend you, in your churches, do you pick up the bread yourself or drink, pick the cup yourself? Growing up, yes. Now in the Mennonite community that I'm part of, we 
we go and yeah. there's an exchange. Yeah. yeah. It, we, it was always insisted. It must be given to you and you must receive. Mm. That was correct, I think. But I know there are churches who just pick it out. Uh, it maybe seems like a small thing, but the symbolism of relationality is yeah. lost. Yeah. 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 Well, and then it seems like that is this that's the stable selfhood then is the relational mm, self, the communion mm, selfhood. Excellent. Yes. The selfhood yes. that most reflects the Trinity, that understands that we are inextricable from each other mm-hmm. and then can mirror back to each other these things with love. So it's almost like that the work of, of seeing the shadow is to move deeper <laughs> into relationship. Yeah. I'm thinking back, I think it was when we were preparing for this episode, Brie, we were talking about the image that we both grew up with. It was an evangelistic tool where there's like a two cliffs on one side, it's you, the other side is God, oh, and, and the then cross. the cross is the bridge. And the flames of hell were licking up around the cross. Yes. Yeah. And so oh it was that need of the cross to get to God. <laughs> and it was like a one-time transaction. Well, you a know? one-time and transaction. That only deepens the, the separate self when you're that's the kind of theology that you're you're raised with, is you don't see that it's a, a continual need for communion. Yeah. Continual, continual need for reconnection. Mm-hmm. You named it very clearly. So many people, as you know, learn visually or by a geometric symbol or sign. Yeah. And that's why you've got to get it right. And uh, we had the little milk bottle with little flecks of black in it. <laughs> and that was the, the Catholic who had sinned. They were what? basically white, uh, which even is racist, right. of course. But they had there were little flecks in the milk bottle. This was the old Baltimore Catechism. That is terrible. It's terrible. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then when you committed a mortal sin, you you basically had chocolate milk. You know it was. <laughs> oh God. We only discovered, you know, after Vatican II, that this document that formed several generations of American Catholics, the Baltimore Catechism, was written by a not-so-theologically-educated Monsignor Mm. from New Jersey, and that he was given that kind of authority to come up with those kind of symbols. I mean, there's metaphors that limp, and there's metaphors that are just tragic, like your cross of your transaction. Oh, man. Yeah, well, <laughs> that image is burned into yeah. my brain. <laughs> yep. I wish it wasn't. Oh, God. This would be a good time, I think, to talk about unity and diversity in this. Well, okay. So, you know, knowing that that transformation, the fallacy of separateness, doesn't just squash diversity. Yep. Can you speak to how that plays into this theme? Yeah, I think one of the major ways, now if I don't speak to it, come back to me. One of the major ways the shadow is created is that we feel if we're not like everybody else, this starts when you're a little two-year-old, three-year-old, you must conform to gain other kids' approval. Mm -hmm. And any kid who is a little different will be made fun of, publicly shamed, and that's the last thing a kid can bear. So that grows into its mature form of confusing uniformity with love. Love which leads to true unity, and the basic symbol is the the love of a man and a woman who are different. 
who are not the same. You know, you don't overcome the difference. You you bridge the difference by communion, connection, forgiveness, patience, all the great virtues. So it's still the same game, this fear of not belonging. And so, like, without any doubt, the minor seminary, the major virtue we were taught in high school. Of course, they had 200 teenage boys, and uh, they had to keep us under control. The major virtue was, was obedience to the laws and punishment of a minor nature for not obeying the rules or the laws. When I first saw this, I really wanted to cry. Think of all of the classmates that left, who came to the seminary to be good Franciscans, I'm sure. But they weren't taught love initially. It increased as we went along. We were taught conformity and obedience and loyalty to the church, to the order, to the seminary or whatever it might be. Why didn't someone see that? That this isn't going to create the kind of pastoral ministers we need because if they don't make that breakthrough before they're ordained or get out of the inner formation system, they're going to treat people the same way. The important thing in the, in the Mass is that everybody conforms, kneels, stands, makes the sign of the cross, and they're a priest that way. And I can't hate them. I realize they bought the game of conformity. So to distinguish conformity from unity is to distinguish it from uniformity. Did I say that right? Yeah, yeah. Uh Why does uniformity become the substitute for unity? Unity applies to things that are disparate or separate. Uniformity is trying to pretend that's all you can do. Pretend you're all the same. I always think of it when I see soldiers marching. Mm -hmm. My God, and every country does it. And the more perfectly you can conform to that march, it must take warriors or soldiers a lifetime to get out of that notion of of life how do they go home and raise their kids yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> if they've been marching around uniform matter and even wearing uniform right right <laughs> yeah oh it's not good spiritually speaking i'm not saying it's wrong but it's dangerous yeah my dad spoke of his military experience where he said that the, he was broken down to who they wanted him to be because uh-huh. it helps build sure. a much easier, more efficient sure. machine versus yes. a diversity within a cohort. Yeah. Well, and it seems like there's a relationship, again, between power over and power with, because mm. conformity seeks to control what we're afraid of in our differences, in our uniqueness. There you it's, go. It's trying yeah. to manifest and flatten and seek to have that sense of certainty, because diversity and creativity and the unknown and unknowing and mystery are all scary. Mm -hmm. Like, 
you know, the mystery of How not could seeing, they not be? right? Yes. The mystery of not being able to see our full shadow. The mystery of not being able to name God or understand or fully describe God. So we create these images of God that provide us with a sense of uniformity yeah. and conformity, and we can control. And I'm thinking about as you're speaking about just the damage of purity culture and how that was kind of weaponized as a tool to shame, especially for women. But, you know, all of us, I think, have suffered from that purity culture within Christianity. And I wonder if you could talk about that as a little bit, that as a shadow side to Christianity, it's part of the shadow that we, that we're maybe needing to bring to the light to say, you know what, how we went about this was deeply damaging. Remember, was it the first day when I talked about Ken Wilber, cleaning up, growing up, waking up, showing up? In my experience, I hope I'm wrong, the vast majority of religion stays at the level of cleaning up, Mm. purity codes. Mm. Thou shalt touch this, thou shalt not touch that. (laughs) Immense concern for not stinking. Let's get back to that again, you know, which makes some kind of immediate sense because it appeals to our sense of uh, I'm a superior being, I'm clean. The rules of the Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts were were very much built on that, and I was a Boy Scout. I'm not putting it down. If that's merely the first level, we have to watch how much of our religion is concerned with cleaning up which is usually appearances, not being, but appearing to be. Growing up is what breaks that all apart, where you see, my gosh, even when I think I don't stink, I know in my own mind I still do. Do you understand? Mm -hmm. That I've had very petty thoughts today. I've had very, uh, I've had thoughts that I'm ashamed to admit to anybody. You mentioned confession before. That was the church's way of saying, there's got to be some place you can say it or it will fester and it will take over. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think there's a freedom too when when you are able to drop purity being like that, the forefront goal. And I think the image of the body of Christ is so helpful then because you know I don't need to be the mouth. I can be the pinky, like I'm called to be, or whatever it may be. Like When you see that the wholeness is the goal, you can just play your part within the body. You're such a healthy nine, but you're a healthy person. <laughs> That's true. I, just, I have my role to play, and I don't need to be everything. I can't be perfect by definition. I am a mouth in my case, and I'm not a whole bunch of other things. Don't hate me for it. Don't hate you for it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's wonderful liberation, wonderful freedom. Well, and Richard, you just used the word person, which is, is so helpful because I feel like the way that Cynthia Borjo and Ilya Delio as students of Teilhard talk about personhood as the goal mm. and what they mean by that is one through whom the whole resounds mm. resounds yes yeah, so the oh. personare of like the one through personare, whom yes. i just use latin richard yes <laughs> you're in the club good Ding. little baptist girl using latin <laughs> <laughs> but that seems to be what this tenet is pointing us to that the gift of wholeness and what Ilya says whole making is our goal mm-hmm. that The waking up and showing up is us awakening to our full personhood, 
that we are we can be ones through whom the whole resounds and allow that resounding to soften the edges of of our imperfection and allow us to just be imperfect because we are as you said Paul the body of Christ but as we as we close on this really really powerful tenet how do we practice this one hmm. Richard how do we how do we take one step further into being one through whom the whole resounds First of all, I'm very glad you introduced that word resound. I don't think I've used that much. And the way you described it makes sense to me. That's good. When I don't need to exaggerate my specialness, my separateness, and my superiority, the three S's I call them, then I can fall back into the hidden wholeness where we share a whole bunch of things in common that are much better than my separateness, my superiority, and my specialness. But we don't know that till we've done it a few times. We have to let our humiliations properly humiliate us. And by that I mean, unless the single grain of wheat Mm. stops becoming a single grain, it cannot bear much fruit. That 1224 of John. I think that's what he's saying. That we're all shelled. We have to now, die. That shell has to break open and recognize it has to send out tentacles or roots into the surrounding soil and draw life from different sources, the dirt and the sun. And then, only then, can it grow. That's a good metaphor. I can see why Jesus used the seed metaphor so often. Of course, he lived in an agricultural culture where it was all around him, the planting of seeds and so forth. So, yeah, just let your humiliations properly humiliate you. (laughs) Now, for me, really, and this is why I'm a bit worried about not journaling anymore, the way I would let that soak in for years was journalizing about it. I'd go home at the end of a day where I felt like shit, forgive me, and try to process why are you so humiliated or angry or resentful or discouraged, but you're disheartened somehow. And an ability to clarify it to myself was just very healing because I would normally recognize I was not a malicious person I was just like all of a weak person, a stupid person. <laughs> Weakness and stupidity you can accept easier than malice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And sometimes a smelly person. A what? Sometimes a, sm- sometimes a smelly person. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Elias is going to love to hear this, how he helped my lectures. <laughs> uh. Well, Richard, I feel like you're inviting us to embrace our mortifications as opportunities to die, mm. which is like what the word really means, but to us to see these humiliations as the the grain breaking open yeah. and to allow it to just be like, okay, yep, that's happening. Next time I stink, I'm just going to tell myself <laughs> that. I'm, I'm breaking open. That's I'm right. breaking open. Well, should we look at some listener questions? Let's do it. Hello, season four. Here's my big living school contemplative question. I find myself always trying to do life correctly and 
hit that magical mark, whether that's Christification or enlightenment or inner peace or nirvana. And I've heard Richard say, you know, many times we're not punished for our sins, but we're punished by them. And I have to wonder then is if we're experiencing life where it's suffering, is life then punishment? And I don't believe in a punitive God, but if we're experiencing this, is this sort of some form of karmic punishment for sins? I know that the word sin is to miss the mark. And so my question is, what is what is the mark? And if Christ is another name for everything, then what is not the mark? Thank you for considering these. I almost want to start just by saying we need to make a distinction between the kinds of suffering that are a natural part of life, mm. that are the part of, of manifestation of this plane of creativity and life and death and these cycles that we're given. And then there's the suffering, the additional suffering that's created by us, by our choices. And I, I just, I feel like I, I almost just want to just interject that as a way to begin the conversation, because to say that maybe, or to, to, to the question of, you know, are we all suffering in, in a karmic way? Is life itself on on this planet because we're sinful? I think it that makes us separate away from the shadow reality of this plane of existence. You know, death is part of this. Suffering is part of this. Our world operates with a certain amount of chaos theory, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's a form of punishment, Yes, but rather just a something that we have to embrace is the way things are, as mm. you said. There's mm. an absurdity to it, mm. but we have to yeah. have that long, loving look at the real that can say, okay, instead of fighting it, let's work with it. That's where I wanted to go well, with it. Yeah, that's beautiful, Brian. What came up for me was thinking about living out of the separate self is a form of suffering. Mm -hmm. Like when we're disconnected yeah, from good. the whole, yeah. then we almost feel it so much more deeply because yeah. we're not connected to God, to ourselves, to community. It's a projection of who we think we should be. That's what jumped to my mind. We gotta carry the blame, the price you pay for being separate. Yeah. Is yeah. you gotta carry the whole burden of sin. Yeah. I did it. Yeah. When in fact we did it. At least well, that's what I'm trying to say in my new book on evil. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that evil is a collective notion. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Well all yeah. I was what I appreciate about what you just said, Paul, is that it kind of gets at his question about sin then. Sin missing the mark would be when we live out of separateness, mm -hmm. when we live in yeah. anti-reality, when we live in a way that denies that our choices have consequences on the whole body of Christ, mm. or that we're we're a part of the whole body of Christ, therefore we're accountable to the body of Christ. That helps me mm. a lot, Paul. I'm mm -hmm. grateful you said that. I do want to repeat that I, I think the, the most simple, wonderful metaphor for this whole theme is John 15, the vine and the branches. Mm. Just read it over once in a while. It's, mm. it's there very explicitly. Mm. Cut off from the vine, you can do nothing. <laughs> wow. That's strong. And understood in a literal way, it could probably create problems, but in a symbolic way, it's deeply truthful. Don't separate from your source. Yeah. Don't separate from the other grapes on the same vine. Yeah. One of my favorite songs is a song called China by Greg Brown, where he talks about 
being in a relationship, this is, but where, where are you? You're off in China. When are you going to come home? And that separateness that we can feel within a relationship where you're both there, but one of you's disconnected. One of you's disconnected. Yeah, you're offline. And that song always rings true to the, the vine and the branches. Mm-hmm. What happens when you're disconnected? Mm-hmm. Another's just saying, when are you going to come home? Mm. Thank you, Richard. Yeah, thanks, Richard. That's a beautiful way to end on that well, meditation. Because people might think this is mere psychology. So let's just pull it back to Jesus, which is our central reference point. Jesus was a magnificent psychologist 2,000 years ahead of the discovery of the science of psychology. Okay, And even the same with the shadow, Mm -hmm. his idea of the speck in your brother's eye and the log in your own. There's projection. Yeah, It's really amazing. (laughs) His transcendent knowledge that foresaw things that we didn't talk about for centuries. Yeah. With that clarity. It all goes back to Jesus. Uh, Jesus. I mean, it's true. <laughs> yeah. We don't have to throw anybody else out. That's right. That's, uh, we've got it. And that's it for today's episode of Another Name for Everything with Richard Rohr. This podcast is produced by the Center for Action and Contemplation. Thanks to the generosity of our donors. The beautiful music you're listening to was brought to you by Will Reagan. If you're enjoying this podcast, consider rating it, writing a review, or sharing it with a friend to help create a bigger and more inclusive community. To learn more about Father Richard and to receive his free daily meditations in your electronic mailbox, visit cac.org. To learn more about the themes of the Universal Christ, visit universalchrist.org. From the high desert of New Mexico, we wish you peace and every good. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.